0: Hello and welcome to the Mental Podcast, the podcast of mentalhealthmedia.org, where we talk about mental health from a holistic perspective. I'm your host, Jesse Zuckman, and on the show today, we are talking about therapy cats. I have the breeder of my emotional support animal, Basho, on the show. Uh, well, no, the, the breeder's not, name is not Basho. The breeder's name is Shantae Burris from Scantily Clad Sphinx. My cat's name is Basho, and he is a Sphinx cat and uh, he came from Shantae uh, about a year ago, and um, we talk about uh, why Sphinx cats are great for therapy work. Um, We talk about all the nuance and difference between therapy animals, service animals, yada yada. We talk about Shantae's uh, own recovery path. She has her own story of uh, using cat-assisted therapy Um, in her own recovery, doing her own healing work. So if you're a person who's thinking about getting an emotional support animal, or you're just a cat nerd and want to listen to an hour and a half conversation about cats, this is the place for you. If you do find the conversation valuable, please consider heading over to mentalhealthmedia.org where you can make a tax-deductible contribution uh, to the project. And as always, do not make any changes whatsoever to your care plan. Um, based on anything you hear on the podcast or any content on mentalhealthmedia.org. Nothing on our platform is intended to be medical advice or medical care. If you have questions about your mental health or any mental health therapies, please talk to your mental health provider. And with that, I bring you the always brilliant Shantae Burris. So Shantae, tell me a little bit about how you started um, raising Sphinx for therapy cats.
1: I went to a lot of cat shows first and determined which breed had the kind of disposition I was looking for, which I aptly named bomb-proof, where they're not timid, they're not shy, they're very outgoing, very, very affectionate uh, with anyone and anything. They don't have kind of that... um, I guess, loyalty that most cats have with their individual you know, owners or people. So the Sphinx was a great breed for, for this kind of work. And when I got my first one, um, I say that he was literally born a therapy cat. It, it was just in him from the beginning, which you know with Basho.
0: Of course. Um, So you were looking for yourself when you first started on this journey, you were looking for yourself? Primarily,
1: yes, it was 100% for myself. It it was um, something that was actually recommended to me as alternative treatment for stuff that I was going through. And um, not only is it good to have animals going to hospitals and things like that? And, and the, the individual people kind of benefit from the animal, but the handler has a lot of benefit too, which a lot of times isn't really spoken about, but as a handler, I was having, if not just as much benefit from these outings and these volunteer sessions as the patients were.
0: So you started as a patient or primarily um, taking animals to hospitals? I'm, I, I want to backtrack a little bit about... Um,
1: I, I started primarily as a handler, but it was recommended to me by a therapist to do this this type of work myself.
0: And a handler, what is a handler when it comes to a therapy animal?
1: A handler is the one that is taking the animal and is responsible for the animal in terms of its health, uh, because we do have a lot of restrictions on the animal's health if we're actually volunteering in hospitals and things like that. They're also responsible for the animal's behavior. Um, And you also, as a handler, you have to be able to interact with the patient that you're working with and just be able to kind of make them feel at ease and comfortable and get them talking and get them kind of moving towards whatever is the goal for that session, be it mobility, having them pet the animal a lot, or if it's more oriented towards um, just socialization helping them with loneliness, things like that. So I was a handler above anything else, but my work as a handler was helping me with, uh, some emotional baggage that I was working through as well.
0: So you started on this journey, um, in Canada, um, and you, you were going, having your own mental health stuff going on. Yes. And, and, so you were looking for a therapy animal, and at the same time that you were looking for an animal for yourself, you were also handling an animal to bring to other patients.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Got it. Um, and um, and now, so you, you got those cats, and, th- and then where did your journey go from there?
1: Uh, well, it actually kind of um, changed quite a bit, just in the sense that at that point was when I realized that the two cats that I had purchased were um, from a backyard breeder, meaning someone who was not doing everything possible to produce healthy, sound animals. And both of my boys uh, were diagnosed with a genetic heart disease that took their life. So at that point, while I still had a massive passion for therapy work and I wanted to continue down that route, I also needed to become involved in breeding, you know, this breed and just trying to make them healthier, trying to make them better and progress them generation by generation, just protecting the breed and the natural mutation that is the breed. Um, and that's when I started breeding Sphinx as well and providing kittens that were appropriate for therapy work for individuals who either wanted to be a team who or who needed an emotional support animal, an ESA themselves,
0: mm-hmm. And why? Spe- I mean, there are tons of cats out there, different types of cats. Why? Why spend so much time and effort with sphinx and breeding sphinx specifically? You know, what, you know, why not just some other cats that are healthy and well socialized?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the I don't think there is a breed of cat out there that even comes close to the disposition of a sphinx. Uh, they're they're just if you've ever owned one, you you know immediately that there is just something different and something special about this breed of cat. And after I got my first one 16 years ago, um, I just, I could not imagine having any other type of cat in my house and I, I just didn't. I've only had Sphinx now for 16 years.
0: What is that about them? When, when, pe- when you say, you know, when you see them, and I agree with you because, you know, I've had two of these cats that have been just so important in my recovery. Um, You know, it's hard to put your finger on exactly what that is, but um, you know, certainly part of it is loyalty and bonding. I think.
1: Yes, a, a good way to describe them is, and probably why they're so good at this work, because when we think of emotional support or therapy, or most especially service animals or task trained animals, we're thinking of dogs. Dog, dogs is always. I mean, however much we can be cat lovers. The saying is, dog is man's best friend for a reason. So the thing with the Sphinx breed is they are essentially like a puppy for life. They love absolutely everybody that they they meet. There's no hesitation. They're very, very free with their love and their affection. They're very, very open to different kinds of people. You know, they're not nervous around men or women or short or fat. Like, it doesn't matter to them. Whereas most cat breeds, if we take Siamese, Persians, Havana Browns, like essentially all of them, they're a little bit more cat is is a good way to describe it in the sense that they they do have a fuse. They do have a limit. Uh, they can be put into situations that make them uncomfortable or make them a little bit more hesitant. And we just don't see that with Sphinx. All, all across the board, even my cats that have come from horrible situations, once they're rehabilitated in my home, because I've, I've done breed-specific rescue once they're rehabilitated, they do—they just blossom into the true Sphinx personality. And that is excessively affectionate to the point of being annoying or a little bit too much sometimes. But that works great in a situation where they're going from bed to bed to bed to bed, from lap to lap to lap to lap, because they don't get frustrated. They don't get tired of it. They don't get, you know, annoyed and wanting to leave. They just enjoy every single ounce of attention that they get. And they're just so free and willing to love anybody. And they love new people just as fiercely, I find, as their owners. They they don't really – there's not really a difference in, I guess, the amount of love that they give. When I have people coming over, my cats are all over them just as they're all over me. They they don't really uh, see the difference between, you know, their their parents and new people. They love everybody so, so much. And so it just – It's kind of this breed was just made for it.
0: And for people listening who don't know, the Sphinx is the hairless cat, big ears, big eyes. Um, What else about the Sphinx? Uh, You know, because people have seen them, but maybe they don't know the the word physically um, what do they look like?
1: To describe them is, and a lot of people think that they're like a sin- skinny little sickly animal, but they're actually quite robust. They, they're they pear-shaped. They have big booties, big bottoms. And that's how we like the breed. Very wrinkled, but they shouldn't be so excessively wrinkled that it kind of takes away from those big giant eyes that make them look very sweet and innocent and kitten-like for, forever. Um, And the big ears, like you said, that's kind of a hallmark of the breed is to have these big giant open ears and everything kind of just makes them look a little bit more kitten like, you know, kittens usually have ears that are are not really proportionate to their bodies and their heads. And the Sphinx is kind of like that forever. And some people aren't into it. Some people don't like them. But to me, I think they look like marble statues. I, I just think they're stunning. I think it's the most beautiful animal
0: in the world. And when you say, you know, it's, they're good for hopping from bed to bed, you know, in a hospital situation where there's a lot of attention to be spread. I mean, also, you know, I think that is great for people that are dealing with, you know, severe isolation, which is also very common with mental health um, patients. Um, because people go through a trauma, they go through a crisis, and very often they isolate or I should say we isolate, um, and we don't have a lot of connection. So to have that animal that is just can't get enough is just an amazing antidote to that social isolation in, in my experience. And just so incredibly special because um, you know, a lot of a lot of folks, you know, who are who are going through a mental health recovery they're not necessarily going to a job every day. They're not necessarily stopping at the library on the way home and, you know, going to church on Sundays and doing all of the things that, you know, a person not in that struggle, um, you know, it's just a different life. And I think for me personally, that is such an anchor point when you're going through your darkest times is to have this being that is unconditionally loving and sweet and um just always there and doesn't want to be anywhere else and doesn't want to be left alone and needs you you know needs
1: you yeah that I think that's the major thing is most cats are so independent and aloof and they truly don't need us I I had a Persian in my life and I mean, she could care less if I came or went so long as I filled up her food bowl. But a sphinx needs you. They must be with their owners. They cannot live without us. And I think it just creates a different bond. And there is theory that it kind of instinctually creates a significant bond between us because it is skin-to-skin contact that we're having with them. But it's, it's true. They help with um, just a a constant in your life whenever you're struggling and and any type of changes that were happening with, in my experience anyways, uh, it kind of just added to the chaos factor that, that people who are going through these things are dealing with and having kind of a rock in the middle of that storm that is unwavering all of the time is, it's, it's just a, it's a really, really helpful thing. um,
0: you mentioned your first cat's, passed away from a genetic heart defect. Could you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually the number one heart disease in cats worldwide, regardless of breed. It's not a breed-specific disease. It's called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, but we are seeing it show up genetically in certain breeds of cats uh, where we are proving that is genetic. Some of those breeds would be uh, ragdolls, Maine Coons. We also see a lot of HCM, which is the... Um, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy we're seeing it a lot in Bengals. um the scottish fold actually just got approved for a breed wide study and you you only get funding and approval for breed wide studies for disease specifics when that breed group is suffering significantly from a given disease so uh, this lets lets us know that now scottish folds are also heavily affected by this disease and so are sphinx um in sphinx we have been researching the um one of the gene markers for the disease. So we would have an actual DNA test to see if this or that cat is a carrier or is homozygous for whatever mutation that we can find. But even still, that's not really a 100% um, diagnostic because in humans, this is also a human disease, we have multiple genetic markers for the disease. So to think that we only have one in Sphinx or one in Maine Coon is kind of naive. And so our number one tool we have to mitigate HCM is an echocardiogram performed by board-certified feline cardiologists. Uh, This is a very simple test. It's just a little ultrasound on the chest. Takes all of 10 minutes. It's it's not invasive. The cat doesn't need to be sedated or shaved. Well, clearly with a sphinx. But even the coated cats, they don't have to be shaved. It's a very, very simple procedure that measures every tiny little aspect of the heart and just checks on everything from from the valves and the functionality of the valves to the atrium. We just have a full picture of the heart and we can assess whether the cat has disease at this point or not. But that's the key is we can only tell if they have disease at that point. They can go on to develop disease a year, two or three years later. Um, In Sphinx specifically, we see genetic HCM popping up anywhere from birth to eight years of age. So that's a really big window for devastation in this disease. So we can be breeding cats that are currently clear that might go on to develop HCM. And what that means is all of their offspring have a risk of developing HCM as well. Because in Sphinx, we consider it to be a dominant mutation. So only one parent has to have a copy of the gene for statistically 50% of offspring to be affected by it. So it's really difficult to tackle in this breed specifically because of that big open window of of possible disease. And um, because people are breeding cats so young and so quickly, it can just really spread those genes all over the place. So my opinion, um, I think the best way to breed is to do so slowly, to implement um, things that can uh, like birth control, contraceptions, things that can allow these cats to remain intact, remain sexually intact, but are not suffering from their hormones and having to wait prolonged periods of times in between breedings because that stresses out a cat, obviously. They do have instincts and mating is one of the primary instincts of any animal. So uh, we use birth control to help hold them off a few years in between breedings. And by doing this, we're able to have more scan information, more echocardiogram information on that given cat. So obviously, breeding a cat at one year who has had one clear scan is a lot riskier than breeding a cat that is six years old that has been scanned every single year during that time with zero changes, zero upward trends that might be hinting at possible disease coming on, things like that. So breeding slow, breeding infrequently and just testing everything constantly sure. is the key, I think. And
0: how does HCM work for people who aren't experienced with it? It's a genetic defect of the heart, but how does it end up? You know, how does a cat end up dying like, from? It? Yeah,
1: progressing. Well, what, to, what, to, is, what does
0: it look like? What is it? What is the physicality of of HCM?
1: So the easiest way to describe HCM would be that it's a thickening of the left ventricle of the heart. Um. And this eventually puts, once that muscle becomes uh, hypertrophied, which is thickened, it actually puts a lot of strain on the heart. So this heart has to work so much stronger, so much harder for um, to have the equivalent function of a regular heart. And because of this strain, we start seeing other things deteriorate in the heart function. And most often what the result is, is congestive heart failure, where the lungs start filling with fluid um, They go into respiratory failure. They have arterial thromboembolisms, blood clots, things like that, which which are generally fatal. And usually it's either um, an acute cardiac infarction, uh, like a big heart attack, or it's congestive heart failure that take these cats. And unfortunately with this disease, a lot of times there are no symptoms. So for example, I have two pets in my home right now that have HCM. You would never know that there is anything wrong with them. They're big, they're strong, they're active, they're he- healthy. They never get sick with anything. You would never know that these cats have anything wrong with them. But, um, I mean, for all we know, tomorrow they could both be dead. It, it really doesn't – it's not a predictable disease is, is the biggest trouble with it. The gene actually has variable penetrance, so it doesn't always – Um, affect the cat as significantly as it does others. So, you can have two animals that have HCM. One can live till it's ripe old 20 years old without ever having an issue. And one can have mild HCM and drop dead the next day. So, we don't really have a lot of hard fast rules that the disease follows. But generally speaking, it's fatal. Um, Generally speaking, it's fatal by means of congestive heart failure.
0: And for if you have a cat that, you know, you have um, adopted or, or, or bought for just the purpose of being an emotional support, and then, you know, they develop a chronic disease that is obviously horrible for the cat, um, it's also very tough on a patient, exceptionally mm-hmm. so, which makes what you're, oh, which makes, yeah. you know, catching it so much so important.
1: Yeah, because early detection uh, can actually prolong life. There are some medications, some medical routes that we can go in order to help the heart function properly. We use all the same kind of medications that we use in humans with HCM. So uh, we're talking about beta blockers, blood thinners, um all, all essentially they're the same drugs. They're just kind of compounded for appropriate dosing for cats since it's such a an itty bitty creature. But um, sometimes the disease might progress in such a way that there are no medical interventions that one can take. But a lot of the times medications can prolong life or improve heart function. So the earlier you can detect detect the disease prior to it having caused so much damage yet, the longer your cat likely will live with the disease. And most importantly, live comfortably. Um, You know, when when they start to show signs of edema and things like that, that could be a a really painful thing for them to experience, really difficult thing for them to experience. So medications can help with this. You can use diuretics to reduce some of the the edema, improve the respiration of the cat. We can implement blood thinners to reduce the risk of blood clots when we see that they're kind of getting to that level of disease where they're at risk for it. So it's just about scanning often and monitoring the disease to see when you can implement which drugs for which issue. And
0: right now there's a lot of people saying, you know, you had me sold on the Sphinx, it was, you know, talking about how loving they are and how great they are. But now (laughs) after all of this talk of blood thinners and uh, chronic disease, um, how could I ever think about doing that? And this is kind of uh, what I wrote in a post on a Facebook group. uh, And that's how we met because I had just, I had just lost a cat, a therapy animal to HCM. And I was done. <laughs> I was so grief-stricken and thought, well, there's just nothing I could do to prevent it, but you actually you do you you wrote me I, so I posted this post on Facebook saying, "Here's a picture of my cat. What are the chances of that I could ever have a, a healthy cat? I am just so devastated." And you spent so much time writing these essay-long responses to me on Facebook and on email. Um, about just how much you can do to to get a healthy animal and all the things that you do with your breeding program um, to make sure the risk is as negligible as possible.
1: Yeah, I actually had those exact same emotions when not one, but both of my boys were diagnosed with HCM. Uh, I was devastated. I was finished with the breed. I was throwing in the towel. I didn't know how I could subject myself to getting another one, even though in my mind, it is the most magical creature on earth. I didn't know how I could possibly subject myself to getting another one and going through the same devastation. Um, but with years of research and just kind of tackling that, that thought process and trying to break it down and really figure it out in reality, um, one of the types of cats that is at most risk for HCM are just domestics. They're just your run-of-the-mill domestic short hair, and that is probably where we're getting a lot of our inheritance from, since the Sphinx breed derives from domestic short It's just a natural mutation from a regular barn cat. So all of our prevalence for HCM is stemming from that foundation, from those barn cats, and. Barn cats do have a high incidence or domestics in general do have a high incidence of HCM. But when you have a cat or a disease that results in a cat dying in its sleep, most often than not, uh, a lot of times with domestic cats, cats that are rescued from shelters and things like that or found outside or your barn cat had babies, generally speaking, these individuals are not going to go and pay like $1,000 to have a necropsy performed on their animal to find out the cause of death. So we're not seeing... Uh, or we're not having um, specific information on HCM related deaths in domestic cats or rescued cats or shelter cats because these animals are simply not going to be getting the same diagnostic treatment that someone who dumps two grand on a cat is going to be doing. And with every breed of cat in the world, you I'm have a to American short hair. They all get some type of heart disease. They're all subject to some type of heart disease. Most often it's HCM, but it could be DCM, RCM. There's other diseases too. And this isn't even um, subject to cats alone. Dogs too suffer from heart disease, HCM, DCM, RCM, uh, in in quite significant numbers too. Um, And they've also had research done on on certain breeds and they found genetic markers in certain breeds like the Doberman Pinscher. Um, has a gene test for it now, too. So it's not just a sphinx disease. it's it's a really a cat disease. But I think the Sphinx community is, I mean, to be honest, we're all a bunch of crazies. Our cats have turned us literally into crazy cat ladies and crazy cat dads because their personality is so <laughs> is so special and so magical that it's actually like a cult formation around this breed at this point. So we just talk so much more about it. The Scottish Folds, for instance, I didn't know that this breed was having such high incidence of HCM um, until I found out about the study that was taken on by one of the geneticists that w- is also working on it in Sphinx. And it's because they just don't talk about it. That You know, there's, there's not everyone yelling all over the place, get your cat scanned and you know, did your breeder scan for HCM? Sphinx people make a lot of noise, which is good. We're we're bringing a lot of light to this disease. And in doing so, we're actually helping other breeds and other um, types of cats kind of take this more seriously as well. Um, From me, I'm the director of Hairless Hearts, which is a nonprofit that um, collaborates with cardios all across North America. We actually just Started in the UK too, but we're mainly in North America. And we just collab with Cardios to offer low-cost screening for pet owners and breeders to try to get more people proactively scanning their cats. It's always better to be proactive with healthcare than reactive, I always say. And so with, with all of that, we're also seeing a lot of hairy cats now coming into our HCM clinics from Persians, which is unusual, not many of them get scanned, to um, Peter Balds are getting scanned now, Don Skoy, which is another hairless breed of cat. So, by us being so loud and vocal and just really fighting for not only better breeding practices, but just better pet ownership in the sense of being proactive with their care, we're actually helping start kind of a, a little um, pattern of, of other breeders of other cats kind of getting on our train and doing the same thing now, which is pretty cool. Uh, But it's, but it is a, it's a cat disease. It's not specific to Sphinx. You'd have the exact same risk if you went with a Devon Rex, if you went with an American short hair or a Scottish fold or any other wonderful breed of cat out there, they all have their same risks too. And some of them actually deal with a lot more genetic diseases uh, like amyloidosis or, um, PK def, PK deficiency. The other breeds are having other genetic diseases as well. We simply deal with HCM in Sphinx, but unfortunately it's it's a big one. It's a major disease. It's not to uh, kind of diminish the significance of it in the breed, but it is a it's a cat thing. It's not breed specific.
0: If someone has a rescue, would you recommend that they also screen yes
1: regardless of the breed or if it's just a domestic i think every single cat in the world should be scanned yearly for cardiomyopathy as a preventative it's similar in a way where women are having um mammograms yearly it's it's preventative care and with a disease that is so so prevalent in cats worldwide it's something we should all be testing for and it's made to be very inexpensive now with with our work with cardiologists and and they're becoming so involved in trying to help with breeding programs and things like that they're doing a lot of really wonderful work all across i mean in multiple states multiple provinces uh, we have a lot of help nowadays from from feline cardiologists so i think every single cat in the world should be scanned
0: now not every cat that you um that you have in your breeding program gets to be an emotional support animal. Yeah. So what is the magic sauce for (laughs) one of your um, emotional support animals? What do you look for? What do they have? What makes it? What doesn't make it?
1: Uh, One of the major things is when a cat has too high of a play drive, which is great for my show cats, but it's not as great for therapy work. So I can't have the potential for them to start batting at a patient's earrings or something like that. So my very playful cats go on to have enormous success in cat shows internationally, but uh, those are not the cats that I choose for therapy work. I choose the ones that are really quiet um, and gentle. They're not very ruckus in a litter. They're not the ones that are getting everyone riled up and things like that. They also have to be extremely amenable to handling. I can't have them um, being distrusting when they're lifted up into the air, put on their backs, held upside down. I need them to trust uh, 100% without any hesitation because they need to trust me Whenever I'm bringing them into all of these new situations, so that they would never be reactive, because they know that I'm going to keep them safe. So I look for cats that allow me to pick them up and flip them all over every which way without any type of hesitation or anxiety or trying to get away or anything like that. That that's really key to the beginning personality. But then a lot of it after that is just simply training, uh, socializing, taking them out constantly. When we have a litter of kittens. Um, Whether they're going to be emotional support animals, whether they're going to be therapy animals when they're older, or they're going to be show cats, um, we take them out constantly. We do multiple drives every night with with individual kittens, taking them to uh, anything from Lowe's to Petco, just any place to get them out and about, see other people, interact with other people, let anybody touch them, let them meet dogs, let them meet other animals. Uh, All things that a lot of breeders are concerned about. But if we're doing our due diligence and making sure that we have proper um, genetic immune systems, that we we have a nice strong immune system that we're seeing passed on from generation to generation in our line, then this is not a concern. I've never been worried about going into a pet store and leaving with any type of infection in my kitten. It's never been a concern for me. Um, so, so long as the immune system is there, then you just do heavy, heavy socialization to get the kitten very, very um, comfortable in any and all situations. And they must not be on a rod diet, depending on the um, what, whatever organization you choose to be with. Um, me, it's pet partners because the International Cat Association, which is the association that I show in, is actually implementing or have implemented a title program with pet partners. So it's a way to kind of give thanks and appreciation to people who have therapy animals who are actively volunteering and, and helping other people out to give. So, them- so you're
0: saying this organization You take your therapy animal and share it with other patients. Is that what these organizations are for?
1: Yes, exactly. So they'll schedule you to volunteer and things like that in hospitals. And then TICA, which is the International Cat Association, they recognize your work in therapy and your cat can actually achieve titles just like mine are supreme grand champions or international winning, winners. These cats that are in these therapy programs can become titled and be at therapy cats of excellence. They'll, they'll actually have a nice little title that kind of shows appreciation and honors them for the work that they do. And because pet partners is the one that Tika is associated with, that's the route that I take. Um, but there's many others out there in the US. The only thing is uh, Pet Partners does not allow cats to be raw fed or dogs to be raw fed while they're visiting hospitals. So that's another thing to consider. I have to, because I'm a raw feeder, I have to make sure that the cat that I am planning on on volunteering with is not on a raw diet or access to a raw diet during the time that the cat is volunteering. there's just as much risk from salmonella with kibbles. There's just as many recalls with salmonella with kibbles, but they don't know how the meat is prepared, packaged, handled, or anything like that. So it's safer for them to just all across the board disallow it. So that's part of the consideration to kind of think when you're doing this. So it's a, it doesn't make me happy to go to a commercial diet for the cat that I'm volunteering with but it is necessary uh if you want to be an animal assisted therapy partner team with with your animal and pet partners
0: well i think i have a new golem in life (laughs) (laughs) i have not heard of this i can't believe i didn't know about these programs Um, yeah they're they're
1: all across there's many many of them pet partners is my favorite but there's um there's just a ton of them, and there's lots of them in or individual ones, maybe not international ones, but there's individual ones in different states. Um, like Pennsylvania has their own program that you can volunteer with. So there's quite a lot of them to choose from. It doesn't just have to be uh, pet partners, but they they are my favorite. Um, if I if I had to choose,
0: and uh, to speak to your point before, I mean, I, uh, you know the cat that i have basho um he went everywhere with me as soon as i got him we have been to art shows we have been to home depot we have been to family members houses and you know i I, if you have not been around a sphinx and specifically i mean with my first cat i think i got lucky um but if you haven't seen a cat that has been specifically picked and trained to do this job, it people stop what they're doing and they say, how do you have a cat in here? Cats can't be a, in Starbucks around the espresso machine. How could How could you have? And he is just present, not reacting to loud noises, not reacting to, like you said, big people, small people, whatever, he's just present with whatever person he's around. Saying hello. Um, I, I do think he's probably a little bit more tuned into me than everybody that he meets, but maybe that's my own bias. No,
1: they, they do. Uh, <laughs> they they do have a little something. I even here I have cats that are I call them their mama's babies. And then daddy has a few that prefer him, but like if we're being realistic, it's only one or two. They all love mommy best. But but <laughs> they, they, they do. And they they don't even care about noises and things like that because like I said, they're um, I'm, I'm breeding specific for disposition, specific for bomb-proof kitties, cats that are non-reactive, that are so confident and, and comfortable in any situation they are, and just happy-go-lucky, just happy with everything. It's, it's exactly how, how I would want to live my life. Just always letting the small things slide and just enjoying every single little moment, enjoying every beautiful thing and every individual person because these cats see it. And a lot of the times we don't. We we don't pay attention to to that stuff anymore. But the cats still see it and it's, it's just a really nice reminder.
0: It is such an amazing reminder. I mean, especially if you're dealing with chronic depression and anxiety or bipolar disorder or any kind of mood disorder. Um, To wake up and have your first experience of the morning be a purring, a cat that sees you, tilts its head just letting you know know, in, in a cute way that just says, I'm glad you're here, is just purring and then is trying to just be playful with you. I mean, we we all have some relationships that you know maybe start that way, mm-hmm. you know, romantic relationships for a couple yeah. of months. <laughs> and when, when you over. get out of the
1: honeymoon, stage. yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like right. with sphinx, it's a perma honeymoon stage. That's what's great about them. And, and it, to
0: have that, yeah, your first, you know, to set the tone of your day in recovery as that playful, sweet just to be tapped into your own playfulness and to be tapped in and reminded of your own kindness and to, you know, we're talking about training these cats, but at a certain point, I think these cats really can train us when we are when we are in recovery and we're looking to get re-socialized. I mean, I was in and out of the hospital for years. I was alone and isolated for years. And when I got my first cat, um, it was really... Time to learn to be a human again, and there are no litter. L- there are no better little Yodas, you know, uh, to teach you, you know, how to not just to be a person, but how to be a sweet, kind, nurturing, loving person. And I think that that imprint has been huge for me in recovery.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's a perfect way of describing it. They, we are imprinting on them, and we are adapting their behaviors. It's it's not the other way around. And I think that's why back you know, way back when, when I first got my two Sphinx and and they were both diagnosed with HCM, and th- this was even before they were a year old, they were both diagnosed. And it just, I, I couldn't imagine my life without them. At the time, I, I felt like I didn't have purpose. Um, I didn't have a passion in my life. I didn't really know where I was going, even with my therapy work and with dog training. It just there, I, I don't know. I felt like something was missing and these guys just gave it to me. And now it's, it's doesn't sound like a big glorious thing to do with one's life. I mean, there's other people that are going out there and changing the world, but I have decided to dedicate myself to protecting my breed, uh, to advocating for my breed and for advocating for better breeding practices, more ethical breeding practices, and, and just letting people see how much they can contribute, um, to our lives and how helpful they can be in recovering from anxiety or depression. PTSD is, is also, in my case, was enormously helped by my cats. So some people might think it's it's just a cat, but until you've truly had one and until you've had one help you through difficult times in your life, you can never understand. It's, these creatures are just something else.
0: And uh, as much as you're comfortable with, can you speak to your own experience of recovery and, and just a little bit about where you were and where you ended up? And Yeah, I,
1: I had a, a, a very difficult childhood. I, I grew up in group homes and foster care since I was about six months old and had a lot of abusive homes growing up and all, almost about 100 um, total. So I moved around a lot and I just couldn't bond with people. I had a very difficult time bonding with people, trusting people, um, and getting over past abuse. Uh, So why my therapist suggested I do therapy work with my animals was because it would put me in situations where I would have to be talking to groups of people or be in and around people that were having struggles that maybe I could relate to. And that's kind of how they helped me through it. So I, I say, my First Sphinx, his name is Little Man. I say little man saved me, which you know sounds a bit corny, but in in reality he did. He he was the be-all end-all for me. He he was my soulmate. And he's he's gone, but kind of what he's left me is still here. Uh, and I I have little bits of him and every single cat that I work with moving forward. And everything that I do is in his honor. Every breeding choice I make, every choice with therapy work is, it's all in his honor. So he still has a, a monumental impact on my life and in a good way. I mean, a lot of times people think, you know, that you, 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 have a loss or you lose a family member or a pet or something, and it's just nothing but tragic. And while that's true, there's also a lot of beauty in just having shared 10 years of my life with him. So I kind of take everything as the positive part of having him in my life. And I don't really concentrate on the fact he's no longer here because he's still here in all of my cats. He's still here in, in all the work I do. And I'm reminded of him every single day.
0: And, you know, this on this podcast, we talk a lot about childhood abuse and neglect um, and, you know, and re-socialization. Did you... Did you find that you were able to connect with people more after having worked with the cat?
1: Yes. It wasn't just owning the cat, though. For that, it was specifically going into hospitals, um, going into seeing children, going into schools, uh, things like that. So the cat, just having the cat alone, I, I, you know, I would socialize with friends and things like that. And when I'd be out and about with him, I'd be asked questions or I'd, I'd be... You know you're kind of forced to engage, uh, but engage in a in a way that's that's fun and comfortable for you because I mean who wouldn't want to talk about their cat that they just think is the greatest thing on earth? So it was kind of a nice little outlet for starting to socialize with people. But it was mainly going into the hospitals. Actually, doing the therapy work for me was very beneficial because I had to speak to these people. I I had to make the um, cl- the patients feel comfortable or. Uh, The children that I was meeting, I had to make them feel comfortable. So it kind of stopped being um, worrying about myself and my triggers and my anxiety. And I just kind of just started acting like my cat. I just started, you know, he's so friendly with them. So then it just made me react friendly with them. And and he was so open and loving that it kind of just started making me be more open with um, communicating with these people. And telling them about myself and learning about themselves. And so it's, it's the therapy work for me was really the, the the most beneficial thing I had. I, it it really, really helped a lot. And for us, it was, um, just initially recommended as alternative therapy. And it, it, wasn't in conjunction at that point with, um, medical therapy. It was just alternate, alternative therapy. So, that also shows that it's possible to recover from some pretty significant traumas without the use of, of medications, which you know can be, can be pretty harmful sometimes.
0: Well, now you're speaking my language because I was <laughs> I, 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 I had convinced myself uh, that my depression was just so bad that no alternative therapy could possibly work. So I did med, after med, after med dozens, probably literally three dozen meds, and they all made me worse. Um, And at first I got put on one and it made me worse. So then the doctor said, well, your depression is just getting worse. So then I got put on two and I got worse. Three, four, I was up to a dozen or close to a dozen at one point and I was disabled. Um, So for me, it was like that road that was a dead end that only made me worse and i really had i found a great psychiatrist um, that was recommended by stanford some uh some um uh research scientists at stanford i just looked at i I found the people doing the most cutting edge pharmacological work and i I literally called them and i said i need a psychiatrist that's better than what i've been getting because this isn't working And that psychiatrist, after working with a year, said something else is going on metabolically, you know, this is not a normal response to all these meds. Um, You need to go see an ND and really look at some other ways of of healing this and and healing yourself. And once I got on that train, I started making real progress. So it's not, you know, we hear about these outlying situations, but it's totally valid. And meds we know just don't work for everybody. Um, And there are so many alternatives out there. And just because they're alternatives, it doesn't mean they aren't really powerful because a lot of them are super powerful.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I think a lot of people just assume alternative medicine or alternative treatments are subpar to the norm, but that's not the case at all. Um, It just depends on the individual person. I mean, I'm not, I I have a sister with uh, schizophrenia and she is medicated and she, she, gets a lot of benefit from being medicated. So I know that medications and, and those kinds of treatments work for a lot of people, but it, it's not, I mean, mental mental issues, mental disease, it's so, it's, it's kind of similar in, to HCM. It doesn't follow any rules, it's not predictable. So we can't just use one type of treatment protocol across the board for every individual p- person. So we have to be looking at alternate treatments that might work better for this person or that person. And I think a lot of people nowadays are starting to see the benefit of animals. And there's even studies that are many studies actually that have have proven a reduction in things like um, blood pressure, anxiety, uh, even even learning capabilities are increased with animals present. Uh, there, there was a, a study done a little while ago about um kids and reading, I'd have to look up the paper, but it showed an increase in cognitive ability in children that had access to kind, gentle, affectionate pets. So it's, it really is helpful for, I mean, for everybody across the board, but in some cases it could be healing.
0: Absolutely. Especially when we have, you know, a society where right now everyone's stressed out, everyone's working too much, there's a lot of kids that aren't getting what they need, you know, certainly a lot of times um, a pet can help fill those gaps and give us that connection um, that we really require. You know, we we know we need nutrition, um, we know we need um, exercise, yeah. um, but, you know, I think one thing that's really uh that people don't know that we need yet is each other and mm-hmm. um, connection. And I think, you know, that's why this works. We have so many studies now that just show how bad isolation is for yeah. mental not only mental health but heart disease, cancer. I mean, just isolated people are sick people. Um,
1: yeah, so it has physiological changes on the body.
0: Absolutely. absolutely. It's, it's profound.
1: And I think animals, they, they nurture emotional well-being. Mm-hmm. So it's for people who are feeling isolated or or this and that. It it's just really really helpful for them.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Could you tell me a little bit about um, your the favorite my favorite place on the entire planet, which is your house, <laughs> um, and and what that looks like on a day in and day out basis. <laughs> okay, well,
1: so at the moment, I am uh, sitting in my living room. I, of course, have cat TV on my huge TV on my wall because I always have YouTube cat TV on. It's always birds. I, I think I had fish when you came over. But so bird I videos. have
0: videos?
1: <laughs> yeah, I always, always have TV on for the cats. And right now I have Monroe the dog directly beside me, and then Mima, who is nine years old with a perfect heart. Mm. Uh, Luther is right beside her. He's seven and he has HCM. He's one of my pets that has heart disease. Belle is directly beside, she's the little crazy one, and she is the daughter of Mima. Mima is a spade female. She's retired in my breeding program, but is living out her days with me because she's my love. And her daughter is going to per- carry on that good heart health. Then beside them is Saya, um, I think that's Ever, or Abby. They're not looking at me. It's hard to tell. They're the same color from behind. And there's two on my desk, and I think that's about it. Right now, I don't know where the others are.
0: How many cats do you have in your house right ten. now? Ten. I have ten <laughs> cats.
1: Ten cats, two dogs, and a coral reef tank. That is essentially for the cats. It's cat TV also.
0: <laughs> and how does that work day in and day out? You get up and you have to feed 10 cats. so they keep you up? Like how, how, when you want to go to sleep, can you go to sleep? How does-
1: <laughs> it's actually, I think it's because I've had so many for so long that it's just second nature to me. And it's really helpful for me um, that I work from home. I think that it would be really challenging if I had to work outside of the home. But luckily I, I just do art for a living. So I can do that at home. And, um, I wake up in the morning. Everyone is waiting at the door because, uh, we, we have a lottery. I've told you about this. We have a lottery every night. So I don't sleep with 10 cats at once. I mean, that's ridiculous. I know that it's ridiculous. I used to, uh, but the husband is not into that. So, so I have to respect his wishes. So we do a lottery every night. We're, Two or three, sometimes four cats are chosen to sleep with us that evening. And it's whoever has pleased me <laughs> more that day. No, whoever whoever was good or whoever needs a little bit more loving, You know, if if Belle is getting pestered by ever because Belle is a really naughty little thing and and sometimes ever she she's an established female, seven years old. Sometimes she gets fed up and she'll give her a punch to the face. So if Belle has been punched or something has happened or somebody needs more love or Luther looked at me with his dreamy eyes, he'll win the lottery. And those are the cats we'll sleep with that night. And we usually switch it up um, every day maybe every two days, we'll switch up who's sleeping with us. and But I don't sleep with all 10. So it's usually two to four per night. My dogs con- are always sleeping with us, though. And uh, so I just wake up in the morning, feed everybody. I feed three times a day, not because it's necessary. I do it because I've been manipulated into it. Uh, they certainly don't need to eat three times a day, but they tell me they're hungry, and I cave, and I do feed them three times a day and most of the time they're just sitting around there's usually only two or three that are active or rambunctious or annoying at a Mm -hmm. time so it's Mm -hmm. it's really manageable well and when what they're doing is just super cute anyways they're either you know playing with a toy or batting at the fish in the fish tank they're just being cute so none of it is really bothersome or or annoying and um I'm very lucky that I have all of these cats, including cats that are hormonal and are breeding or actively breeding cats, that they live completely free in my house uh, without any issue whatsoever. My stud, who was loose when you came over, he doesn't spray, so he, he gets free roam of the house. None of the cats are ever put away unless they either have a litter, at which point they're put into a bedroom. That is outfitted with little cat trees and things like that in a human bed so I can I can sleep with them. And um, if they're in heat, if the girl is in heat, they will be put away. Usually it's in the master bedroom until they're out of heat, so that my stud is never isolated. I I don't, it's not something I'm comfortable with. I don't like, I, I don't think it's normal to have cats and then keep them all separated from you. So my cats all just live as my pets did without any type of difference. Other than when they're in heat, they're put away for four or five days, and um, I I just have a great dynamic in my house, and everybody loves everybody, and that's why whenever people are like, oh my god, how can you not keep them all when you have babies? Every kitten that I keep back has to be for the purpose of bettering the breed. Um, that's the the crappy part about being a breeder is we have to deal with a lot of heartache uh, in that I can't keep every kitten that. You know, speaks to my heart, or that I fall madly in love with, because it's not fair to the current cats in the house, and it will not allow me to progress my work in the breed. So I get heartbroken all the time. Um, I suffer all the time. But whenever I'm choosing a kitten to stay back, it must be a kitten that I feel genetically and healthwise and disposition wise can improve the breed every single generation. And it also must be a kitten that has a compatible disposition that it will fit seamlessly into my home without messing up the dynamic because the cats are that are here, they're my family. So I need to make sure that I'm always putting their needs as my priority. And if they didn't get along with a kitten that I had intentions of keeping, I just I wouldn't be able to keep it because I have to prioritize their needs above anything else. And uh, the second priority is the breeding program and improving and progressing the breed. And then the third priority is my heart. So I, I get heartbroken a lot. Uh, I mean, just with Basho leaving was was very difficult for me. And there was some of the uh, beeplings, actually. Gamora was just the love of my life, and I I couldn't keep her either. So it's it's not always easy, but... I'm, I'm very lucky that I have all 10 that are just, everyone gets along and just, it's a, it's a great little zoo in my house and I don't charge admission, which, <laughs> which maybe
0: I should. How, and when you started dating your husband, but did you have this many cats?
1: I did. Yes. Um, he knew, he knew. So I didn't catfish him, no pun intended, but he was well aware of, um, I was already, uh, breeding for many, many, many years, before him, I had already done, you know, uh, all my years in therapy work, and uh, my breeding program was established. And um, I had no intention, and never will stop. I, I will do this until my hands don't work and I, I can't cut umbilical cords. That's when I'll stop. But for for now, I have no intention of ever stopping. This this is my purpose. I, I was put on this earth to protect my breed. And he knew that from the beginning and he was completely fine with it. He's not as involved in, um, actual, uh, parturition like delivery, which I, I don't see how anyone would want to miss that. Cause it's, it's literally the most beautiful thing in the world, but he's, he's not very involved in that, but he, he loves the heck out of the cats too. And, uh, actually the, Harrison is his soulmate. It's kitty soulmate. He said, so he's he's turned into just as crazy. I have him flying. Uh, he just went to Canada. What was it two weeks ago to go to a cat show there? So uh, he's turned into a full-on crazy cat dad. Full-on. You,
0: you must trust him pretty uh, completely.
1: Yes, for for that <laughs> I was very anxious, and because I'm a control freak, you know. So I was very anxious. And I made him uh, learn the songs that I sing them as I'm walking them to the judging tables. He had to learn how I talk to them and sing to them. And, you know, Rebel likes having her back padded, but Groot likes you telling him he's a cute baby. And he had to learn
0: everything. (laughs) When people have an idea about, uh, you know, animal breeders, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of a stigma, I feel, Mhm. And very much so. People get it wrong or 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 do they and w- could you speak to that, you know, to anyone that's like I would never get a cat from a cat breeder because I've heard all of these rumors.
1: For sure. And I think that the issue with those rumors and why those rumors stick so in our minds is because a lot of it is true unfortunately. Uh, there's I would say The easiest way to separate breeders is there's a group of ethical, responsible breeders who are breeding in order to uh, promote, improve, or breed. And then there's another group that are breeding for um, financial gain or, or trying to use this as a hobby. And what I always say is breeding should not support the breeder. Instead, the breeder should be supporting the breed. What is important defining an ethical breeder versus a backyard breeder is transparency and honesty. And they have to be communicating with you any type of problems that might arise in the litter or concern in the litter. And um, so just ask questions. Don't be shy. A lot of people, even when people are inquiring with me, uh, a lot of my information is just, you know, very transparently put on my website, but I still expect people to be asking me these, you know, deep, hard questions and I want them to speak to my cardiologist. She's a, a wonderful reference for me. I want them to talk to all of my pet homes. I want them to discuss my cat's health with my veterinarian. Um, because these are these are just references for me. If, if you have nothing to worry about or you're being open and transparent, then those having discussions or references from those individuals is actually beneficial for you. So if a breeder is hesitant in doing that, I would question why and Nowadays, you can Google someone's name and find out a lot of information on them. So I would suggest doing that too. But the stigma is there because unfortunately there is and will always be backyard breeders or kitten males. I'm from Quebec and Quebec is probably the number one puppy male capital of the world. And it's something that we we regularly struggle with there. And I think in California, there's also kind of an anti-breeder mentality And I don't take it offensively. I just explain whenever I'm seeing a new vet or something, I go over my entire breeding program, the health testing that I do, my theory behind breeding and my purpose behind breeding. And I've never had an issue after that conversation. It's never been an issue for me. So I think um, people are open to learning about why you choose to breed, why it's just as as important as, you know, doing rescue because realistically rescued animals are the byproduct of backyard breeding. So if everyone in the world only adopted and not shopped, which is the the little phrase, then the only type of cats and dogs that we're saying are deserving of homes are cats and dogs that are unethically bred and produced. So that's a pretty significant statement if you think of it that way. There's always going to be a place for ethically bred, well-bred, health-tested animals. And we need them for a lot of the work that we do in service and therapy anyways. And these breeds are something a lot a lot of times that were just given to us by nature. The hairless gene is a completely naturally occurring mutation. So it deserves to be protected and improved. It, it deserves it. We can't just let this mutation die off um, it would be a shame if we did. And it's no different to the American curl, for instance, that's also a natural mutation with the ears kind of curling backwards. And while they might not be everyone's cup of tea, same like the Sphinx, they're still deserving of protection. And I think that's what it comes down to with ethical breeding versus backyard breeders is one is doing it to protect and improve their breed. And one is doing it for financial
0: gain. And if someone wants to start this journey and they they realize that, you know, maybe um, a bred cat has something a little bit special for their needs. I mean, my family, we must have rescued a dozen cats in my lifetime um, as far as, you know, trapping feral cats and bringing them home. Um, And that was all, you know, I'm glad we did it because we could save a lot of cats, but depending on where you're at, um, those cats are not necessarily specific to um, a patient's needs because they are feral. Um, if someone wants to go down this journey of looking into and exploring um, what uh, finding a, a therapy cat um, as a you know a sphinx therapy cat, where do they even start? Is there a way to like just start looking in the right direction so um, you're unlikely to find backyard breeders? Um, is, is there a way to eliminate a lot of them?
1: It's actually it's 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 even more difficult. To navigate than that because uh, there could be breeders who are actively showing their cats and registered that are not doing all the health testing they should or are breeding cats with um, significant risk because this is genetic disease if you have a a cat whose dad has HCM then we know 50% chance the cat in question might have HCM even if they're not showing it yet so um and they'll continue breeding from that cat anyways. So there's still breeders who are actively showing their cats or are registered who are still not doing everything they should be doing in order to improve the breed. So it's really, really difficult to, to navigate. And none of the registering bodies like TICA or CFA or any of them um, police breeders in any sense of the word. So there's no... Uh, n- mandatory pre-breed screening that's required in order to register a litter or anything like that. So the you can't really even go by whether a cattery is registered or not. I think the best bet um, online nowadays, it's really easy to get some information. So on Facebook, for instance, there's a lot, a lot of um, heavily active Sphinx groups. And in those groups, that's probably the best time to just ask questions on, you know, I'm looking for a breeder in this area do you have a recommendation and don't go off of one recommendation. Just keep searching and searching and searching until you're completely satisfied and really feel good about this. Buying a cat for this purpose is not, it's not a quick thing. It can take months and months and months. It can take years, um, Like me, for instance, I I have a two-year waiting list. I'm not even really taking anybody new on my waiting list for now. Uh, So it could be really hard to get an animal because any breeder that is reputable, has earned that good reputation, is ethical, they're going to have a waiting list. So it's near impossible to get a well-bred Sphinx kitten as soon as the idea pops into your head that you want one. The ones that are readily available available at the age where they're ready to go home, likely likely there's a reason for that. There's a reason why that breeder has not amassed, um, a big, you know, a big following or something unless they're new. Cause there, there are still a lot of really great new breeders and we need new breeders to continue becoming involved and getting passionate and, and kind of adding to our ranks. It's, it's super important in the breed. So there are a ton of really good new breeders out there too. Uh, so it, the rule doesn't apply for that, obviously, but probably in any kind of Sphinx forum or Sphinx group on Facebook, there's a, everyone is heavily active in those groups, and that's usually where you would get the the safest, most reliable recommendation.
0: Is there one specific uh, thing people should look up on Facebook?
1: Um, I would say just search the word Sphinx group, and and there's tons. There's I love my Sphinx Sphinx. Cat Fan Club, Sphinx Obsession, Sphinx Lounge. There, there's, there's so many of them. There is a ton of them. But um yeah, so I, I'd say go in those groups and kind of get a feel for for everyone and just expect a lot from your breeder. I mean, we really have to hold breeders highly accountable for every breeding choice that they make, every life that they bring into the world. And Every interaction they have with their pet buyers, it's it's all crucial to the integrity of breeding ethically. So people shouldn't be afraid to ask questions. I think a lot of people are kind of hesitant because they don't want to insult the breeder or, you know upset them and then they won't sell them a cat or something like that. And if the person is unhappy about getting asked questions about the health of their animals, and they're not really the breeder that you should be looking for anyways. So never be afraid to just drill the breeder as much as they're interviewing you. You should be interviewing your breeder because you're, you're adopting a family member. It's not just like a, you know, you're not bringing home a new chair or something. It's, it's a really and, big and deal. That's
0: good advice for if you're looking for a therapy animal and also if, um, you know, th- these are also basic things you should expect from your doctor or anyone involved in your in yeah. your you know in your recovery. Um, should be able to ask your doctor a lot of questions, and if not, move on. Um, uh, you know, the same thing. Mm-hmm.
1: And if it's for us, if it's specifically for a therapy animal, you want to make sure that the person you're adopting from has experience in it, understands what's required of a therapy animal and the disposition of a therapy animal. What's required required for then becoming certified if that's the route that the person wants to take and, and what the task of that animal is going to be, be it just an emotional support animal at home or if it's something that they want to be taking out and actively showing other people or volunteering in hospitals and things. So if the breeder has never had a therapy animal, has never volunteered in therapy work or done anything in therapy work, then they might not have a complete understanding of what's required and then you might not have as good an experience
0: and just a couple more questions um it is so messy online and i get asked all the time uh, about therapy animals versus service animals and there's a lot of confusion Mm -hmm. out there the rules are changing yeah the (laughs) rules are changing like every year it seems could you just speak to that to someone Mm -hmm. that's like well is this a service animal is this a therapy i don't know
1: So a certified therapy animal is an animal that is registered or certified with one of the um, organizations that does animal-assisted therapy, so Pet Partners or Love on a Leash or any of the other myriad of of organizations that do these kinds of things. So that's a certified therapy animal, certified with one of them, having completed and gone through one of their programs um, which entail just some educational courses that the handler takes in terms of what's required of you or expected of you when you're volunteering. The animal has to um, pass a health screening and be um, supported by a veterinarian, and then they also have to pass an assessment that they are safe and and fitting to go and work in hospitals. So that's a certified therapy animal. These are working animals that are volunteering in hospitals with their handlers or child, you know, schools or um, uh, any, any number of things they, they, they use them for. A uh, ESA, which is an emotional support animal, this animal is something that you need to have a mental health professional write you a prescription saying that you have a, a disorder, a mental or emotional disorder that requires the use of of comfort and emotional support from this specific animal. Uh, So you need to have an actual doctor's letter for this. Your animal is then covered by the Fair Housing Act and the Air Carrier Access Act. So you can fly with your animal provided you have all of the documentation to support it and provided your animal is respectful and well-behaved. It cannot be causing a disturbance in an airplane, for instance. Um, I know somebody took a peacock recently or something like that on the plane. And then uh, in in if you're renting or something and it's a, a rental home that doesn't allow um, cats or dogs or something like that, you would still under the... Um, the uh, housing act, you would still be able to rent an apartment or a dwelling or whatever with your animal provided it was an ESA. So they're protected a little bit more than a certified therapy animal. Certified therapy, this is just work. You, You don't have any, you're not allotted any extra protection. So the ESAs have a bit of protection and then a service dog is um, protected under the Americans with Disability Act. this this is a big one and it's one that a lot of people are using to um, or the terminology serves dog service animal is used for ESAs and also also therapy animals and that, that's really wrong. It's not only wrong, but it's also it's illegal um, you can get fined and you can have jail time for it. it it's it's fraud. it's a really big deal. And these animals, only dogs and miniature horses, are protected under the e- the ADA. So while I do know of cats that have um, been tasked, trained to do uh, medical alert, like seizure alert or uh, blood sugar alert, so they are, in essence, service animals. But the law, the verbiage in the law, does not protect them. So that's important to note. So you can have a service animal that is a cat, but it is not protected under any law. So, you know, a a restaurant can kick you out if they so choose, whereas they can't do that with a service dog or a service horse. So service dogs, service horses, they're protected under the ADA, and they are specifically tasked trained to help with a disability. So a seeing eye dog, um, a dog that's uh, trained for mobility issues, like Parkinson's or something. Um, So those are service animals, completely different, but everyone seems to kind of use those terms for everybody. For, for all three
0: categories. That's an excellent breakdown. Um, also, one thing I'd like to add is that some companies, depending on what, who they are, have, um, you know, allow you to have a, a therapy cat. Um, like, um, specifically Airbnb in the last year is, uh, as of the last time I checked, and these, this, this changes so much that I'm uncomfortable saying this is an absolute rule but they were allowing uh, therapy cats regardless of you know what the the host's uh, pet policy was Um, and also um, a lot of um, motels and hotels uh, also allow depending on, you know, e- even if they have, there are no pet plays, oftentimes if you check with them specifically, they will allow therapy cats if they have, you know, a vest or a collar or something like that. So, so mm-hmm. even. Be-
1: yeah. And there, I think that some of them are actually required to, I'd have to go over the law again. Uh, it's been a long time since I, I read it, but uh, I think even Hotels, motels, any any dwelling that you would need to stay at um, would likely fall under the f- uh, f- Fair Housing Act, which protects. ESAs. Yeah, that is
0: where it gets murky, and.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it starts getting. It depends on the uh, right. hotel and the motel, and depends on even the education of the person mm-hmm. at the front desk. But it, it can get right, a little dicey right. for that. Absolutely. But I, I think, unfortunately, people just don't understand the difference between the three. They they use the term willy nilly, and so many people are abusing of ESAs, and you know, bringing in an untrained little 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 chihuahua. Not that I have anything wrong with with little dogs. I have little dogs myself, but uh, bringing an untrained little dog in and, and saying that this is a, a service dog, uh, you know, just just explain what task that the animal does. Um, but. Unfortunately, because of the way the law is worded, if even if you have suspicions, it's not really for one thing, it's it's not it's not kind to assume, but uh, you're very limited in what you can ask in terms of getting any sort of proof from from the person. You're you're limited to asking, is this a service animal and what tasks does it provide? And that's it. You cannot legally ask anything more. So unfortunately, while so many people have incredible need for service dogs, they oftentimes are having a hard time nowadays because so many people are bringing just their regular pets and claiming them as service dogs. So it just makes it really difficult for everybody who has legitimate need of these animals, even ESAs too. Uh, the law was there for a reason. It's 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 there to protect people and to offer support and, and even convenience for people who have disabilities. And with so many people kind of abusing of it and and, and bringing in animals that might not be well behaved and things like that, it's actually making it very difficult even nowadays for people with ESAs. There's airlines that are really uh, cracking down hard and, and coming up with a lot of very difficult issues um, Prerequisites before approval to fly and things like that. So it just all around makes it hard.
0: All um, just my one last question before we wrap up and and uh, and say goodbye. Um, you know, on on this platform and this podcast, we're talking a lot about holistic health, nutrition, diet, and this is something that you talk a lot about uh, from a feline perspective, which is feeding raw food. Um, being a more natural diet for cats and making healthier cats. And if anyone would know, it should be you because you have just seen so many cats and are tracking their health religiously. Um, could you speak a little bit about why you feed raw?
1: Yeah, I, I am a huge advocate of, of raw feeding. The only time I ever take an animal off a raw diet is specifically when that animal is... is actually working in therapy. Otherwise, all of my cats are raw fed and all of my kittens start a raw diet at 21 days of age, religiously, every single one. Um, Nowadays, with kibbles, uh, canned foods even, there are so many preservatives and things that are, are added into the food that are inexpensive fillers like corn, uh, corn gluten meal, rice, potatoes, so many starches and carbohydrates. And I think it's really important to remember that a cat is an obligate carnivore. It must derive all of its nutrients, and it is is—it is physiologically um, designed to derive all of the required nutrients from prey bodies, from prey animals, from meat, bones, organs and things like that. They they do eat a small matter of um, vegetables, uh, grains, whatever is in the stomach of their prey animals that they're eating. But the biggest difference in this is that those um, veggies and grains and things like that have already been pre-digested by uh, the prey species because that's what their guts are meant to do. Their guts are meant to ferment this kind of material, whereas a cat is incapable of doing this. They lack um, one of the salivary enzymes that is responsible for digestion of of uh, starches, like uh, it's called amylase. Cats don't don't even have that salivary enzyme, so their their physiology their their, their Biological design is letting us know that they are not made to digest this type of stuff. The only way that they do naturally is pre-fermented grains and veg matter that is in the gut of animals that they're eating. So when we put potatoes and corn and starches and things like that in their kibble as binding agents to make those weird little biscuits... We're giving them a ton of stuff that they don't need. And in doing so, we're seeing gastronomical levels of diabetes, allergens developing. Uh, corn is one of the most common allergens in cats nowadays. We're seeing more incidents of heart disease, um, liver disease, re- skin allergies. There, there's just so much detriment to feeding a kibble diet uh, we didn't have these diseases in cats back when we had them all outside eating birds and mice all day long. You know, this is, this is a new event when we started feeding kibble to cats. We also see a lot of dental disease with them. Some people are under the mindset that feeding kibble helps clean teeth. But that's like if I ate some candy and chips, if I'm going to get clean teeth from that. It, it makes no sense if we really break it down and, and look at it logically. So uh, because of all these things, I'm very pro-raw diet. I started feeding Rob about a dozen years ago after after researching for two years because it's a huge change and we're all brainwashed uh, by wonderful commercials and marketing that tell us that we have to be feeding our cats fish and potatoes or chicken and wild rice. And we th- see these things and we're like, oh my God, that sounds delicious. It's so good. I'm going to feed this to my cat. But this is good for humans. It's not good for, for obligate carnivores. We're not a carnivore. So, um, feeding the most natural route is the best way to reduce on all of these diet induced diseases and feeding a balanced raw diet is the best way to do that. If you can't feed raw, canned would be the next best thing because kibbles are so dehydrating and a cat, it's impossible even with a day of drinking water for them to make up the hydration deficit that they're going to get from eating a kibble diet. Um, so feeding raw is the pinnacle of nutrition, but it must be balanced is the key you know, slapping down some hamburger meat and calling it good is, is not sufficient. And if you're feeding an imbalanced raw diet, it would be the most dangerous thing that you could possibly do for your animal. It has to be balanced. There are many veterinarians that have uh, big extensive websites online, feline nutritionists that have specifically formulated raw diets that that they feed to their own pets and that they advocate for. So there's a lot of actual veterinarian approved raw diets out there but most veterinarians are getting their nutritional information from a handful of seminars that are hosted by the Hills company which is a big uh, pet food company so they're they're really all of the education is happening on when to implement these specific prescription kibbles and canned foods and when not to not necessarily what the actual nutritional requirements of cats are. That's not what what they're being trained, and I've been in those seminars myself. So that is not what we're learning about. We're learning about which diets, which um, prescription diets should be implemented in which disease pattern. So veterinarians are, are generally speaking, not very pro-RAW, but we also have them worrying about um, their customers or their clients and whether or not they're actually feeding a balanced raw diet. So that's the concern. If there was proof that all across the board anyone feeding a raw diet would be doing so in a balanced, healthy, nutritional way, then there wouldn't be so much concern over it. But the concern is coming from a place where they're worried that pet owners are not capable of balancing their pet's diet appropriately. Though we do it for ourselves and we do it for our children, but we apparently are not able to do that for our cats. Um, which is kind of really a weird concept if you think of it, but, um, but yeah, so feeding a balanced raw diet, best thing that you could do for your animal. And if you wanted to go a step further, a whole prey diet is best. This would be, um, buying frozen thawed, uh, prey animals, which are chicks, little birds like pheasants and things like that, rodents, uh, and feeding those whole to your animal, which a lot of people's stomachs are probably turning just listening to it. But it is the best, most balanced, perfect little meal that you can give your cat. It's the most natural way to feed them. And when feeding raw, you see monumental differences in health. And this is extremely apparent in a hairless breed, that has no fur or anything to cover up and hide um, issues on the skin surface, skin quality, cleanliness of the ears, uh, even their weight, their musculature, everything. We, We can see it all on this breed. There's no way to hide imperfections. And when I first switched to raw, I saw an improvement in my cat who, at that time, had heart disease. There was an improvement in his activity level, his heart function. He he regained a bit of cardiac strength, which is a pretty big deal after many years of, of having heart disease. Um, I had a cat that had IBD, which is, you know, many cats nowadays are being diagnosed with this thing, and this is not something that was ever a thought 15 years ago in vet med or was very rare anyways, but nowadays... Everybody knows someone who has a cat with IBS or IBD. It's it's absurd and it's absurd that we just take this as the norm. And most of it is caused by those commercial diets. Just giving them so much so many fillers, so many vegetables, so many carbohydrates. Uh, it's just so much garbage in their food and it's resulting in them not digesting properly or, or having imbalances in the gut flora and even kibble actually reduces or changes the pH level of the gut. Like the natural acidity of a cat's gut is altered by feeding kibble. That It's insane. It, it has monumental side effects that we just aren't, a lot of people aren't aware of. So um, I saw my cat with IBD have a complete resolution within three days of feeding raw. My cat that had heart disease had an improvement in his heart function which was, um, verified on echocardiogram. It wasn't just, Oh, I think he's acting better. We, we verified that there was improvement after three months of a raw diet. And, um, I had a cat with chronic allergies that also recovered fully. And he, he, he's allergic to kibble um, kibble chicken though, but he can eat raw chicken without any issues. And that that's actually one of my HCM positive kids too. And, um, so it, it's really the best thing that you could do. It's a little bit more difficult in the sense that if you're preparing it yourself, you have to take time out of your month to package it and handle a whole lot of disgusting meat. And if you're someone like me, who's who really doesn't like me, it's, it's kind of gross, but it's, you know, we live with carnivores and we have to be feeding them appropriately. And it would be just as silly to feed a cat potatoes and things like that than it would be to feed a snake. And we would never think like, oh, let's feed some snakes some carrots. So we we understand and we fully appreciate that that animal is a carnivore. But we are not having the same mindset with our, our cute little naked kitties and furry kitties in our house. For some reason, there's there's a disconnect that's a, there.
0: That's a really good point. And, um, you know, from a personal perspective, and, and I anticipate, you know, for other patients as well, um, you know, depending on where you are in your recovery and depending on where I was in my recovery, at my worst, it would have been a tough job to, like, figure out the raw feeding. But once I took one step out of that black hole, really f- having a cat who just totally loves you, um, having little chores to do for them can be a really good thing to get you to get back on track um you know little responsibilities um it's it's work it's certainly work it's two hours i think i make enough for about 40 days now um and it's two hours and month and change so it's a task but i could imagine even you know if i was back a couple years in my recovery that, that would have been a good task for me to take on, um, you, know, in, you know, to help my family member and just to kind of get in a routine of doing something good for another creature, another being.
1: And I think that's required, too. I, I think that's one of the biggest things with depression is you just totally lack any type of um, incentive to do things for yourself. There's no motivation, no motivation to get up. There's no motivation to eat. I'm even brush your hair sometimes. But when you have another little creature that is completely reliant and dependent on you, it, it gives you more incentive and more motivation to get up and do those things because you're doing it sure. for someone else.
0: Sure. Um, and also when, you know, this is, you know, your hobby, as you say, your number one job is creating these just amazing cat sculptures that are one of a kind. If you haven't seen it, you need to check out Shantae's uh, art because you've never seen anything like it. What? Uh, where can people check out um, your art for sale?
1: Um, I'm on... I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm I'm not like super good (laughs) with social media. So I I don't know anything about Twitter, for instance, but I'm on Instagram and I do believe my name is at Shantae underscore sculptures. And I'm on Facebook as Shantae Burris Sculptures. And it's just something I started uh, three years ago and it was actually started because of my passion for Sphinx. I wanted a Sphinx sculpture really badly and I couldn't find any online that, that portrayed them in the way that I see them, which is these beautiful, wonderful little beings. But every sculpture that I was coming across, they were hissing or they were really skinny or they looked really mean and evil. And it just wasn't speaking to me. So I decided the next day to try my hand at sculpting. And I I just, it ended up being something that I was, that just came naturally. And luckily enough, from just that silly little thought late at night in bed, to try making a sculpture the next day turned into, this is all I do. I, I'm a commissioned artist full time now. And it's even that I owe to this breed. It's ridiculous. <laughs>
0: the, the work They're they that is pretty, amazing. <laughs> and the work is is pretty remarkable. The likenesses that you're able to capture um, and, you know, with your own style is, um, is really, really cool. And the stuff that you're making, like the uh, Christmas ornaments you're making now and um, yeah, the, the big fat sphinx balls, yeah, amazing, just fantastic. You're doing fantastic work with them, thank you. Um, so please, please, uh, if you're listening, please check them out. If you're into cats, uh, you need to see these sculptures. I do uh, dogs too,
1: and oh, truth right. I actually have a boxer dog in front of me right now, a little boxer puppy I'm working on, and I actually prefer doing dogs. I shouldn't say that too loud because all my cats are here, <laughs> but I, I do, How it's, come? but I, I still. Oh, um, uh, just much easier. The, the, I was a dog groomer for 18 years. So I'm so used to sculpting dog fur with, uh, scissors and just have the anatomy down very, very strongly because I used to show dogs too. And, uh, coat texture is a lot easier when I'm doing a Sphinx. Uh, the, the amount of sanding that goes into them to make them pristine, smooth, I feel like my hands are going to fall off. So dogs are just way easier. They're, they're so much easier than Sphinx, but Sphinx are still my true love, obviously.
0: Of course. It, it, that, it does look like a lot of anatomy, though. I, I, I was an art minor, <laughs> And get, getting into that, I, I would have given up on half of those sculptures that you do with every muscle, every tendon. Every, oh, my god. Yeah, it just,
1: they come together really easily. Honest, Most of the time, I'm not even paying attention, and then all of a sudden, I look down, and it looks like a dog or a cat. So I'm not quite sure how it happens, but they just come together.
0: And uh, if people are interested in checking out your breeding program, I know you're way booked up, but if people just want to get more information about you or... Uh, or yeah, not, I'm
1: always happy to, to answer any questions, if, even if they don't have a kitten for me or I'm not having them on my waiting list. Um, I am always available to anybody, any breeder, any backyard breeder, any new breeder, any person who wants a sphinx, who wants to rescue a sphinx, who just wants to know more about the breed, or even someone who's not into the breed and, and just wants to talk about why they're not into the breed, they can always, always reach out to me. I'm available to absolutely anybody. And they can find my email on my website, which is scantilycladsphinx.com And uh, I'll make
0: sure we have a link um, around um, where we um, upload uh, the podcast uh, to your website, And, um, and yeah, thanks for being so available. I mean, certainly, you know, you've definitely had an imprint on my life. Um, just being so available, I I just cannot imagine, um, what I would have done without you, uh, spending all the time. Um, so I, I really thank you for, uh, for doing that and, and, and helping me get my boy, which is just so, uh, such an amazing part of my life now that I'm doing a little better and I know that he's uh, a huge pillar and will continue to be um, a big pillar. And that's all thanks to you and, uh, and and your being available and your hard work and and dedication to doing this work. So thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. This is why I do it. This is exactly the reason. This is what I talk about when I say it gives me purpose in life. It's, I get a lot of benefit from this too. I get a lot of emotional benefit from this too.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure. So yeah, I want. I want. To, I want to start. Uh, I want to do the work that you are doing um, with 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 uh, with Basho in in hospitals when the time is right. Um, for sure, that sounds like an amazing thing.
1: Yeah. W- whenever you're you're ready, I can help you walk through all the steps and
0: everything. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, we'll do it. Thank you so much for for the time and taking uh, taking the time to to talk on the podcast.
1: You're welcome. It was my pleasure.
0: <laughs> okay. Cheers. Bye. I forgot to add that when I lost my cat, I was not in a great place mentally and uh, Shantae's uh, Facebook posts and her Instagram really kept me going for a long time while I didn't have my best friend anymore. Um, If you like cat videos, scantily clad Sphinx on Instagram and Facebook some top-notch cat videos. Really underrated stuff. Um, Just brilliant, brilliant cats. So many personalities, so many sweet little cats, just being silly, being loving, being cat-like. Highly, highly recommended. Um, Anyway, thanks for listening to the show. Special thanks to Tamara Broadhead and Patrick Mohan, who helped bring you this episode. If you like the show, head over to mentalhealthmedia.org where you can subscribe to all of our feeds and make a tax-deductible contribution if you want to. Um, If you don't want to, that's okay too, but we could really use the help if you are a person uh, who has a a few bucks laying around. Uh, We could use a few bucks. We don't have a few bucks laying around. Uh, This is a nonprofit project. Uh, We don't uh, have too much funding yet. We're trying to get this guy this project off the ground trying to make this a a sustainable thing so we can keep bringing you all of uh, information on all of these uh, alternative therapies and mental health that really work that aren't bullshit that aren't healing crystals that aren't uh, eating you know a raw meat diet doing all these ridiculous things but no like things like how to actually eat how to uh, actually work out for depression how to uh, find a therapy cat if that's something you want to do and the things to look out for so on and so forth how to have nurturing relationships how to uh, put the past in the past how to heal trauma Trying to make sense of all of the different trauma therapies I mean jays there's a lot of stuff out there that works if you're a person like me you try you thought you tried everything you took all the meds you did talk therapy for years you didn't feel any better Um, If you think you're out of options, uh, you know, this is a place to look to get an idea of uh, what else might be possible in your recovery because there's just so much stuff that works, including therapy cats, although I think my therapy cat is raising my anxiety right now because he is bored and he wants to go run some errands with his dad, so we're going to go do that as always don't make any changes whatsoever to your treatment plan nothing on the podcast or on mentalhealthmedia.org is intended to be medical advice or medical care um you you really don't want to make any changes if you have questions about your mental health you need to talk to your mental health care provider whether if that's your doctor nurse practitioner your counselor whoever that is your professional mental health care person Everybody is so unique when it comes to their mental health, you just can't get information off the internet and expect it to apply to you. We are all so unique. And my cat is so unique in the fact that he will not be quiet until his dad puts him in the car and we go on an adventure because he is an adventure cat. You talk, you heard Shantae? What did Shantae say? You put him in the cat since he's four weeks old. This is the problem with having a therapy cat. Uh, that socialized like this. He doesn't want to stay in the house all the time. He wants to go out with his dad. He wants to go, uh, it's now, what time is it, bud? It's 7 o'clock. He said, I have not been outside all day. We haven't run any errands. We haven't gone to the park. What are you doing, man? So, um, before the cat, uh, attacks, uh, the microphone and just makes a big scene, um, we're going to go, but follow me on Twitter, at Zookman, uh, at Z-O-O-K-M-A-N-N, at Zookman. Um, that's where I post every day, throughout the day. I retweet the best patients on the Twitterverse, um, in the Twitterverse, on the Twitterverse, whatever. Uh, where we hang out, where I hang out. I share, uh, you know, I share details from my own healing path. I answer questions and just uh, keep this conversation alive about uh, different ways to heal from mental illness because um, there are so many ways there's so many stories um, there are so many paths to recovery and that's what we're doing and that's what mental health media is all about until next time friends i will see you later Zeitgezund.